Welcome to another episode of the Brown and Black Podcast. My name is Jack Rico. And I'm Mike Sargent. And every week we take a look at race and pop culture through a brown and black lens. Today, Mike, we're going to be talking to award-winning filmmaker Don Porter, who's going to be discussing truth and the Supreme Court. Before we get into it, I just happen to be in Los Angeles for the red carpet premiere of the new film that I directed. And we're definitely going to be talking about it in the next episode. In the next episode. We're going to hear all the details, man. What happened at the red carpet, the reception. I want to hear about the party. I want to be here about the celebrities that were allowed to go and how you're feeling about it as a filmmaker, too. So I can't wait to talk about this all uh, in the next episode. Well, all right. First of all, let me just say I can't wait for our listeners to hear this interview. And I will say probably in the annals of everything we've ever done, there have been, there've been an episode where you missed an interview and there's been an episode where I missed an interview, but I have to say, I'm very, very, very disappointed that I did not get to be part of this interview. And I will also say no hyperbole. I think it's one of the most important interviews we've ever done because I think the topic and what she talks about and this, this series deadlock, how America shaped the Supreme court and everything she brings to light just this is such an important conversation. That's all I can say. Like you said, Mike, Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, which comes out on September 22nd on Showtime. And this is one of the definitive conversations of our time, Mike, because it's not just me. I think it's a lot of people. It feels like it's crooked. Well, it's not just crooked, but it, it the Supreme Court, as opposed to representing what's best for the people, the Supreme Court has morphed into something that represents the ideals of a select few. And they're determining laws that govern everybody. And it's a scary prospect. It's it's probably one of the most, I think, along with climate change and 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 like you said, labor, it's one of the most important issues of our time because it will affect, there, there are issues of labor that are going to be coming across the Supreme Court. We have this great interview for you guys. She, I would call her one of the goats, man, when it comes to Absolutely. filmmakers in the industry. She has done documentaries that should be a part of curriculums and to understand the power that the Supreme Court has and how it shaped, how it originated to where we got today, I would suggest that if you are interested in how the, the machine operates, okay, watch these four episodes. Then from then on, you'll have an understanding of what this election, 2024, is going to be all about. Exactly. Don Porter, thank you very much for being on the Brown and Black podcast. The name of the docuseries is called Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, which will air on September 22nd on Showtime. You are an award-winning American filmmaker and founder of the production company Trilogy Films. You graduated uh, from Bronx High School of Science, Swarthmore College in 1988, Georgetown University Law School, and then you were trained as an attorney, but then you transitioned into filmmaking and you financed your first film with assistance from the Ford Foundation. So talk about passion, 
talk about determination and talk about having clarity for a vision to then execute from concept to reality. What was it about filmmaking that made you drop, Don, everything else in your life? <laughs> well, thank you for um, clearly speaking to my mother and my husband about <laughs> to marry both of those questions. But first, it is great to be with you. I love what you do, and I'm uh, so appreciative uh, to have a, the uh, time to talk to you. I was a city kid. I love New York City. New York City made me. And I was actually very clear about wanting to be a lawyer. Actually, what I wanted to be was a lawyer and a stewardess when I was small, because I was like, I want to travel, but I want to be a boss. <laughs> so when I was eight, it seemed like a lawyer and a stewardess would be the, like the perfect combination of things. And I was happy being a lawyer, but I, my father was a commercial photographer. He had a studio on the far east side. I don't know if like over by the East River, there are these carriage houses that mm -hmm. are still there. And his studio was in one of those and it had this beautiful light and like cobblestone floor and like these frosted glass windows. And I just thought it was the most romantic place ever. And I was little, I was like five and six and I used to go there. But so I was always like intrigued and captivated by images. And I had a camera since the time I was 15 but, you know, my father was a photographer, so I became a lawyer. I was going to do my own thing. I was going to be mm. something different. And then really what happened is I got married. I started thinking about the rest of my life. And I just wasn't seeing like women in the law who were able to, the, the way I thought I wanted to be a mother, like raise their kids and be there with their families. So I was looking around for how do I meld these passions and, um, so I went to ABC um, television in New York City. And uh, then from there, I got hired to work in network standards. And the way that my boss did that job was not what can you do legally, but what should you do as a journalist? How should we report the news? What are our ethical considerations? And she was really smart because she always used to say, if we lose the confidence of our audience, we're done. They're not going to trust reporters anymore. And this was back in 1998 that she was talking about this. So watching how the news came together, how reporters did their jobs, I was like, wait a minute, I could do that. <laughs> because if you're not, so many people in our communities don't have those internships. They're not in those rooms, right. kind of breaking it down and seeing how you actually do it. So I was lucky that I got that chance to kind of see how, how things are put together. But also I saw people working at a very high level. I saw people mm. who could take something complicated and make it comprehensible. And really, if you think about it, that's what lawyers do. We take right. complicated set of facts, we synthesize them, we present them. The difference in journalism, you shouldn't have an agenda. You shouldn't be more transparent and objective. So at some point I thought, I was seeing a lot of stories about people who look like me, but weren't by people who look like me. And I thought I have I can add something here. I can I can use all of my background. So I didn't intend to be a filmmaker. I, I just kind of got grabbed by what I was seeing and thinking that why not me? Why 
why aren't there more people who look like me doing this? And we can do this. I could do this. And then I was lucky enough to have an amazing husband who was like, you absolutely can do that. The only power the Supreme Court has is its legitimacy. And if it loses that, well, then the question becomes, why obey? The objective of the court was to use the Constitution as an engine of social change. But there are lots of people who want to stop that. So your docu-series comes at a very interesting time for the Supreme Court as it stands on what I consider to be an ideological crossroads which is fueling this crisis of legitimacy, which you talk so much about, especially in the fourth episode. Um, From your investigations, Don, what does the current court makeup say about who we are as a nation today? And do you think that the court is driven by societal changes or does it shape them? I love that question. You kind of are getting right to the heart of our series. And this the series is four hours. And the reason why I'm so happy that Showtime gave us all of that visual real estate is because what we're doing in the series is giving you the history. It's giving you the how we got here. And so the first thing to think about in the how we got here is who's appointing the justices, who's nominating the justices. So Richard Nixon had four appointments to the Supreme Court. Ronald Reagan had four appointments to the Supreme Court. Jimmy Carter had none. So when you look at who is shaping, who is presenting the nominees, we we have this story of people who are actively trying to shift the court to the right. And that leads us to where we are today. Where we are today, though, is far more, and we say it in the series, it's a more radical court. It is not just a conservative court. Presidents come and go. Nominees are for life. You get what you get. You don't get upset. As long as the process is fair and we feel like people are being nominated for appropriate reasons. And I think what's happening right now is the court is certainly leading and charting its own path, and it is not following the will of the country. And so you ask, how is that possible? And that's kind of what we we start to answer is you've got to look at how these people were chosen, what they were groomed to do, and then see what they're actually doing. The court to us, Dawn, meant almost something divine, something that was set in stone, a trust you would never, ever even doubt. Because that was the level that we were playing at, the high stakes of this. And it's been eroding. And so what happens to truth? While in the media business, we're all dealing with a distrust of misinformation, fake news. If you can't trust the media and you can't trust corporate to do the right thing for us, look at the WGA strikes, everything else. You can't trust the government and you can't trust the Supreme Court. You can't trust the church to take care of its children. If you can't trust the truth of the Supreme Court, what can we trust? 
And, and and that's exactly the point for for black people for brown people. Our conception of the court is largely tied to Thurgood Marshall, because Marshall gets appointed as uh, a lawyer with an insanely successful record. He is one of the most successful advocates in Supreme Court history. And that, rightfully so, makes Black people proud. We are like, Thurgood is on the court. A person like Thurgood in the depths of segregation gets appointed, gets nominated and confirmed and serves on the highest court in the land. And even before that, Thurgood Marshall is literally storming through the country dismantling segregation. And so for such a long time for Black people, it was, let's just get to the Supremes. The Supreme Court will take care of our individual rights. And it's really important for us to remember that history, because when people are looking at where the court is today, we are looking at it with this shock and dismay, because where is this court that ruled in Brown v. Board of Education? Where is the court that guaranteed a woman's right to choose in, in Roe v. Wade? Where is the court that that gave us Gideon v. Wainwright that said you have the right to an attorney? The court that said you get your rights read to you when you get arrested. All of these things came through Supreme Court jurisprudence. And at that time, to your earlier question, which is really, really important, the court was, was leading in a lot of ways. The court was saying, this is the embodiment of American ideals. We protect people without power. And now you've seen that turned on its head. You see this court saying they have an ideological bent and they are going to serve it at all costs. And that is very, very dangerous because it points to your second point, which is if you lose faith in this court, where are we? Our system of government depends on a strong judiciary, a strong executive, and a strong Congress. And if those are out of balance, if those are not functioning appropriately, we lead to this potential chaos. I don't think that is why anybody waves the flag for this country. I think we're actually built on something better. What was the most surprising thing in your research and filming this project that revealed the itself to you as a shock? There were there were many things. I mean, some things people should understand is, is you don't have to be practicing law to be appointed to the Supreme Court. So Earl Warren, who presides over the Warren Court era, this like famous kind of liberal establishment of individual rights, was the governor of California. And it was not clear that Earl Warren was going to become the liberal lion that he became. Michelle Obama said, some jobs show you who you are. Some jobs reveal who you are. Like for Earl Warren, being the chief justice of the United States Supreme Court in America, one of the most powerful courts in the world, revealed who he actually was. And he was a person who put into practice protections for individuals. So we get nine to zero decision in Brown v. Board of Education in the Warren Court. We get all those individual liberty protections that that's what conservatives are waving the flag about. Aren't we a great country because we have those protections? And now isn't it ironic that they're undoing all of those protections that they are going around saying America is the greatest democracy in the world? Earl Warren had no confirmation hearing. I guess affirmative action is okay for some folks, (laughs) just not for others. 
was literally appointed to the job, like took his kind of birthright. Mm-hmm. Some like really disturbing things. I think hearing Richard Nixon say he's not against abortion in all cases. For example, if there's a black and a white, he could see the reason for an abortion. He says that on tape and Nixon was recording. So we tried really hard to give you where we could find the archival that would give us some insight into what the presidents were thinking. We tried to give that to you. Another thing that I think was was really revealing is seeing Mitch McConnell after Judge Bork is not confirmed. So Judge Bork was a very conservative ideologue, nominated for the court. And at that time, he was considered too conservative to be appointed because he was saying things like, you should overturn Roe v. Wade. And that was seen as really radical jurisprudence that was too out of step with the country. His nomination is unsuccessful. And Mitch McConnell takes to the well of the Senate and he says, you can shoot this nomination down, but we're going to do the same to you. And that's exactly what he ends up doing. He vowed that 30 years ago, and he's making good on that promise today. You had talked about Marshall and the the trust, the legitimacy that he brought to the court. How do you see Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson's appointment as the first black woman, in your view? Do you feel that she's going to have an impact the way maybe Marshall might have had that impact in the next decade or so? First of all, as my husband will tell you, for pretty much a week, every single day, I would wake up and say, Atanji Brown Jackson, because I, it just was so thrilling to see this brilliant woman take her seat. Editor of the Harvard Law Review, no one can question this woman's qualifications. Kind of sad that we're still talking about that because we don't talk about, like, can you tell me where all the white guys went to school? Of course you can't, Right. We are already seeing her impact on the court, and she is doing something in the very long tradition of Supreme Court justices, which is she is writing very detailed dissents, and her dissents are already being looked to as some of the most important jurisprudence that we will ever have. And what you do when you're in the minority is you write these roadmap dissents. And so you point out all the flaws that you see with the majority opinions. And so Patanji Brown-Jackson is actually one of, and so is Sonia Sotomayor, they are writing dissents that look to another day, that look to a better day, where we are respecting precedent, where we're protecting individual rights. And so they are really, she is really leading and creating a roadmap for how Mm. we roll back some of these more draconian decisions that we're seeing come out of the court. So she's absolutely having an impact. Unlike Clarence Thomas, she asked a lot of questions. She writes really well. She thinks really, she's a really strong thinker and a clear and concise role model. So yeah, she's having a huge impact. How long was the process or the pre-production to put this together? Clearly you're an extremely achieved woman in filmmaking, you probably got this down pat. Like, I've done this before. I know how to do it. Was this a difficult pre-production to do? It was not easy. I'm, I'm looking at my team laughing uh, uh, at the idea of that. And I'll tell you what was not easy about it. So this came to me, a former colleague at ABC News, Minnie Malhotra, 
he was a producer on World News Tonight. And then he eventually ended up as the head of nonfiction at Showtime. And he called me up about three years ago and said, do you want to do something on the Supreme Court? And I said, yes. But that was all that we had. So we kind of started in this development process to say like, and I, I'm such a geek. I was like, you know, the confirmation process is really interesting. Let's do that. And he was like, yeah, he's a geek too. He's like, yeah, let's do that. And then as they started to get into it, I was like, I don't think people understand some basics. I don't think they understand like the arc of the court over the last 50 years. I agree. What if there's some more ambitious? What if we say, hey, you think you know how the justices get there? But here's how the how's how it really happens. Here's some successes. Here's some challenges. Here's the slow march to the right that we've been seeing for a really long time. It's coming out of the blue for a lot of people. But if you've been watching the court, it's not so much of a surprise. So it it morphed into a much more ambitious, ambitious project. And so it was not easy. But the thing that was the most difficult is we were somewhat chasing the news. So we would get to a place where we thought, okay, we got it. This is how it's going to end. And then Clarence Thomas would take more money from somebody rich. So <laughs> get another yesterday, <laughs> I'm listening to, I'm watching the news. And once again, we hear Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, was preparing for the ruling in Citizens United before the decision came down. That woman should play the lotto because that is some awfully good and and auspicious timing that they, she somehow knew that the Supreme Court was going to allow dark money to, to flood into elections and was preparing her ultra conservative group Liberty for America to take advantage of that ruling. Long form documentary is not made for chasing the news. We have to go back and do more interviews. We have to open it up. We have to change the edit. So we, I realized like we could have continued forever because this is clearly an evolving story. And so my job as a long form filmmaker is to give you some background to understand the present day that you're seeing. So when you hear that Ginny Thomas is the founder of this not-for-profit that she eventually got paid for by the Federalist Society head, Leonard Leo, you understand how long the Federalist Society, the conservative legal movement, has been working to get to a place where they have placed the last four Supreme Court justices on this court. Every time you get into a project, I am sure that you learn something from that project. Coming into Deadlocked, what did you learn about yourself after this amount of research compiled with everything else you've done? Your knowledge base must be pretty sick. <laughs> um, thank you for that question. I think... In recent years, I'd started to worry that I was getting too cynical, that I had just seen so many dark things and saw much of some of the worst of people that I was starting to kind of lose hope just a little bit. And, and actually, the opposite has happened because what I've seen in, in the making of this series, first of all, like all of the legal scholars that we spoke to, regardless of their political orientation, are concerned about this court. 
Second is I've seen a lot of groups on the ground respond to these really challenging decisions that that deny people their rights with action. They're not just going to accept a decision. We're not sheep. We don't just lie down. Seeing kind of the resilience of some of these groups has been actually pretty inspiring. But I think the biggest thing that I realized is for all of its flaws, I actually do believe in the promise of America and the promise of the court. And I believe it's worth fighting for. You criticize things that you love in order to make them better. And so I feel actually even more committed to saying it's important that we tell the truth. It's important that we point out facts when we see them. It's important that we be fair. And it's important that we kind of model for our children that there is something worth believing in besides yourself. I think actually what I learned is I'm a lot more optimistic than I thought, and I'm going to live to fight another day. George Orwell once said that in a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. For you, with this series coming out now during all this debate about the court's future, what do you hope this docuseries can add to the conversation, especially for brown and black people? I think it's probably fair to say that no one group has been more assisted by the Supreme Court than black and brown people. We can't afford for the Supreme Court not to be functioning in a legitimate way. Something that's also quite clear is the court is listening. They read the polls. They read the news. There was a recent voting rights decision where John Roberts, the author of gutting the Voting Rights Act, votes with the minority. He he changes his vote and protects the Voting Rights Act. That's not because John Roberts all of a sudden cares about voting for Black people. It's because he's read the room and he sees that the courts, as the court's reputation goes, so does his personal legacy mm-hmm. as chief. He does not want the Roberts court to be the court that got away. He is an institutionalist. And so what that says to me is we need to be loud and we need to be insistent and we need to remind people of the better parts of Supreme Court history, because we can't afford for this to be a body that doesn't protect our individual rights. We just, we simply, it's simply not acceptable. Don Porter, Deadlocked, How America Shaped the Supreme Court, comes out on Showtime, September 22nd. Don, thank you for being on the Brown and Black Podcast. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this episode of Brown and Black. If you would like to support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. Your help will allow us to be heard by many more people. You can follow our comments and opinions on at Brown Black Podcasts on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We'll see you on the next episode of Brown and Black.